When people see something that says studies show that the minimum wage kills jobs, yeah. they shouldn't just take it as gospel. If you were to look at all studies, what you would find is that the average employment effect of the minimum wage is actually really small. They don't make these arguments because they're true. They make them because they're the most effective way ever devised to make rich people richer. the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jasmine Weaver. I'm the executive vice president here at Civic Ventures. In this episode, we're not talking about the minimum wage. We're actually going to go deep on how economists study the minimum wage. And that's like a ridiculously wonky thing and probably will test the patience of even our most hardcore listeners, but is so important to understand because how we study the minimum wage is so different from certainly what my intuitions were when I first got into this work. And when you understand how the minimum wage is studied, what the methodology actually is, it becomes really, really clear how easy it is to manipulate that data and how, if you aim to, you can absolutely show anything you want if you so desire. Absolutely. And so when people see something that says studies show that the minimum wage kills jobs, yeah. They shouldn't just take it as gospel. Exactly. And among the things that we're going to learn on this episode is that there's a difference between theoretical predictions based on neoclassical economic assumptions, which is sometimes what people in the media will say is studies show that, it, that you know, the minimum wage will kill jobs. And, and that is in turn different from actually empirical studies of what actually happens when you do increase the minimum wage and the broad spectrum of approaches that you can take with respect to that second part, the empirical stuff. So this is why it's so important is that if you open up a newspaper or read a magazine, you could read a headline that said that, well, you know, this study shows or, you know, the Congressional Budget Office predicts that raising the minimum wage will kill this many jobs. And without being able to know where they got that data or how they developed that point of view, you just have no idea about what it actually means. On this episode, we get to talk to this uh, fantastic economist named Ben Zipperer, who is an expert uh, in the minimum wage and how you study it. And obviously, because so many incredibly rich, incredibly powerful people have a stake in people believing that if you raise the minimum wage, it kills jobs. Because if, if that's true, then why would you raise wages, obviously? It has been very, very hard to kill that idea. That, that, you know, there's a big, robust, and well-financed audience for that orthodoxy, and they want to maintain it. Uh, but when we talk to Ben, what we're going to go into is what the methodology actually is. And by so doing, we can show our listeners, I think more clearly, what the difference is between a good study and a bad study and why all of the good studies seem to show that there's basically no effect, at least up to the points that we've already raised the minimum wage. I mean, maybe at $50, there would begin to be an effect, but certainly up to 15, nothing but good stuff has happened. Great. Well, that sounds fun. Let's, yep. let's talk to Ben. 
My name is Ben Zipper. I'm an economist at the Economic Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. We're super excited to talk to you today, Ben, about our favorite subject, the minimum wage, but in particular, as one of the nation's leading experts on the minimum wage and on the essentially the methodology of studying the effects of the minimum wage, what we really wanted to do today was unpack how those studies are done. Because for most folks, even pretty sophisticated folks who care about this issue and follow it closely, it's very clear that what you actually do is very different from what their intuitions tell them that you do, which is simply to count up the number of jobs in a place after a minimum wage increase is enacted. That is very different from what's actually going on. What we really want to do is have you explain what economists do so that it can give folks a window into how easy it is, if you want to, to show that a minimum wage increase has harmed people, even in a city like Seattle, where, for instance, unemployment fell and business starts rose. So with that, uh, we'd love to dive into the conversation. And we're very excited also to hear about your new methodologies. Uh, I know that you're working on some really exciting new things. Wow, these are great topics. Um, thanks for having such a um, opening the conversation that way. Yeah, why don't we just start with kind of the basic idea about uh, what modern research does to kind of tease out the, um, let's say, the employment effects of the minimum wage. I mean, that's kind of the hot yeah, topic right. often, right? I would say that probably until the, you know, the 1990s or so, many economists kind of took it as their prior or as what they accepted to be basically the truth that minimum wages reduced the employment of low-wage workers. So you raise the minimum wage and uh, that causes it to be more expensive for employers to hire workers and um, end up hurting the workers you're trying to help to begin with. And, and Ben, if I could just interject for our listeners, that conclusion was a product of taking conventional neoclassical economic theory very seriously, conceiving of the economy as a closed equilibrium system where basically if one thing goes up, another thing must go down, that if you raise the wage, you push the economy away from the equilibrium, more or less. I think, I think that's absolutely right. That is coming from a theoretical point of view that, hey, you know, employers don't even really choose wages. It's just like this thing called the market supply and demand. It sets wages for um, based on the productivity of the workers that you're talking about. And um, that determines their wage and that determines the level of employment. And if you you can have policies that change that, but you're you know going to start changing the level of employment as a result. And so that's kind of like the theoretical prior that you're talking about. And I would say that there was actually a lot of research that confirmed that prior. However, I would say like roughly in the 1990s, especially with the work of uh, David Card and um, the late Alan Kruger and some other economists, that research, that empirical research that confirmed that theoretical view, that new empirical research at that time really started to challenge that view. And this gets to this methodology discussion that we're talking about. 
some of the new work that began in uh, the late 1990s and early 2000s really tried to take, I think, very seriously what are the best ways and most compelling ways that we can actually demonstrate empirically the effects of the minimum wage rather than just picking up something else that's going on in the economy regardless of the minimum wage. And so the classic kind of study that I think has informed uh, modern research a lot is a study by David Card and Alan Kruger that compared what happened when New Jersey raised its minimum wage and they looked at employment in New Jersey at restaurants and compared changes in employment in restaurants in New Jersey to right next door in Pennsylvania. So this is a very transparent case of you have this state, New Jersey, that raised its minimum wage. Pennsylvania did not raise its minimum wage. Let's look at employment on restaurants you know, near the border of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and we're going to compare what happens before and after in both places. And that idea that kind of experiment or thinking of the minimum wage increase as an experiment that happened and having both a treated area like you're got a drug trial the minimum wage is the drug you're going to treat some people with the drug in this case new jersey and you're not going to give the drug to your control group in this case pennsylvania and you're going to look at the changes of the control group and the treated group new jersey and pennsylvania and you're gonna see what happens in terms of employment. And what they found doing this experiment, what's sometimes called a natural experiment or a quasi-experiment, because you're looking at the world as though maybe an, ex an experiment didn't really happen. We didn't kind of like randomize, uh, uh, do a medical trial, a randomized control medical trial, but instead looking at the situation as though it were a random experiment by having a good control group for New Jersey, which is right next door over the border in Pennsylvania, what Card and Kruger found is that there really wasn't much of a change of employment. If anything, employment rose in New Jersey after the minimum wage increase compared to Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I think it's true to say that virtually all of the subsequent empirical studies that use that basic methodology have borne out essentially the same finding. I agree that in my view, the best studies, the studies that really do a very good job of taking seriously, coming up with a very good control group for your treated group of minimum wage increased places, those studies really confirm that finding and basically find zero employment effect. And I just want to underscore that what you mean by zero employment effect is that raising wages did not, in fact, kill jobs. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a very clear, that's a much clearer way to say it. So, and so those studies, you know, looked at low wage workers, and we can talk a little bit about what that means, but typically young workers, workers without a college degree, maybe workers in restaurants, and looked at, tried to estimate the employment effects of the minimum wage and found that the minimum wage on average didn't really affect the employment level of those groups much at all. But it did raise their wages. So they are getting benefits from the policy, but just not really any real downside. So Ben, let's unpack that a little bit, because that's pretty striking given the headlines that we see every day, both in states as they consider raising the minimum wage and at the federal level as they're considering raising the minimum wage to $15. You know, we see headlines, you know, raising the minimum wage to 15 will cost 3.7 million jobs. CBO study says we see all sorts of studies across the country 
as states uh, consider this. So you're saying that you know the best studies that we've seen over the last 25 years show that raising wages doesn't kill jobs, and yet every day, as any jurisdiction considers raising the minimum wage, huge headlines about all of the terrible things that raising the minimum wage is going to do to workers. Yeah, so I think that's coming from the fact that there are studies that show negative employment effects. In general, I don't find those studies very credible, and we could talk a little bit about that. But I think it is the case in my judgment that the best studies show end up showing very little to no employment effect. But you know, forget about my judgment. It's really the average study published since the year 2000. Like, just take all the studies. Forget about Ben Zipper's judgment. Just take all the studies. Look at the typical estimate, and it's actually pretty small. Yeah. That the in the sense that the employment effects of the minimum wage estimated by the typical study published over the last 25 years is essentially very small and should not be a concern, especially relative to this, the actual benefits of the policy that we actually see for low-wage workers. Right. Let's dive into how you create a set study, if you wanted to, that would show <laughs> that the minimum wage killed jobs. And there's this very, you know, I would call it notorious study that was done here that showed that the implementation of the minimum wage in Seattle actually killed jobs and harmed workers. But when we examined the methodology that the study employed, it sort of shocked me in the sense that, that it was so obviously designed to show that result. And you helped us understand the deficiencies of that study. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? There is this famous study that has been very influential. And in fact, um, you know, just like uh, Jasmine was saying earlier, the Congressional Budget Office, which also came out with a study recently, you know, felt that the Seattle study was important enough to include as, um, you know, influencing their results. So as you all know, um, Seattle had a very ambitious and large minimum wage increase that was phased in over several years, eventually reaching um, $15 and beyond. Uh, and this study that we're talking about uh, by a group of researchers at the University of Washington uh, evaluated some of the early stages of those minimum wage increases. I think they you know, had the data to analyze uh, the minimum wage increase up to $13, I think was the, or at least that was the latest one that I read. You know, they start with some pretty impressive data on employment and Washington state and wages in Washington state and the number of hours people work. And so they have all this data on individual level workers. Um, so that's their starting point. And they know that Seattle raised its minimum wage and the rest of Washington state at that time didn't really have a, a large minimum wage increase. So that begins their study. That begins their treated and their control group. So they have this treated group, Seattle, and they have the rest of the Washington state. That's the control group potentially, or some part of Washington state is the control group. And they have to figure out exactly what the control group is. And then they're going to compare the treated and the control group and come up with hopefully their estimates of how minimum wages affected wages and employment in Seattle. So that's kind of the lay of the land. And now to get to the specifics, one of the things that they did is, well, one of the limitations of their data actually is that they only have data on Washington state. They don't have data on say Portland, Oregon, another you know city nearby. They just have data on Washington state. So all they can do with their data is compare Seattle to other places in Washington state. 
Now, it may be that other places in Washington state happen to look a lot like Seattle, have very similar employment trends, very similar wage trends. But it turns out that that's not the case. It's very hard to find a very good control area for Seattle. Seattle, during this time period, uh, right before the minimum wage increase was really happening, Seattle had an extremely hot labor market. Wages were growing very, very fast in Seattle compared to other cities nationally, compared to the nation at large, and crucially, compared to the rest of Washington state. You're just on that basic measure of like, how fast are wages rising? Um, right off the bat, Seattle looks very different than wa the rest of yeah. Washington state. And that is a very serious problem. And in fact, I think the main fatal flaw of this University of Washington uh, study is that unfortunately, you know, they tried a lot of things that are kind of in principle are reasonable do, but just unfortunately, there just really wasn't a place that looked like Seattle that they could use to compare Seattle to. And Ben, can you talk a little bit about their findings and also why that study has had such a big impact? Because the interesting thing about this study, when I think about it, is that it hasn't really had a huge impact in Seattle. We all look outside our window. We see the economy booming. We walk down the street. We see help wanted signs for entry level restaurant fast food jobs at $20 an hour. Or $25. $25 yeah. an hour. So we, mm -hmm. we don't see what the study finds, but... It's used as a scare tactic. You know, you, you mentioned the CBO study. We hear it cited frequently at the national level. We also hear it, you know, cited in every single state and every single city that is considering raising their minimum wage. So why did this study have such a big impact and what did it find? Well, I think, you know, very plainly, it had a very big impact because I think uh, a lot of people's prior or a lot of influential people's prior is that the minimum wage must harm low wage workers. Anything that confirms that point of view yeah. um, gets a lot of press. And it's yeah. not just not just press, but that's actually true. I mean, just to be very clear, that's true within the economics profession. So there's a lot of interesting research now showing that minimum wage research that's published in peer reviewed journals actually on average has a publication bias towards negative effects, that there are studies that don't see the light of day because they don't have the right answer or they don't confirm with this prior that we're talking about. So not only do you see this in the media, that there's a lot of bias towards studies that uh, show very large negative effects of the minimum wage, that's also true in the peer-reviewed work in the economics profession. And so those things kind of like combining, I think, really amplify studies that unfortunately, in my view, shouldn't be very informative about policymaking. Yeah. Ben, wasn't there another fatal flaw in the methodology of this particular study, which is that they did have good data, but only data on single store operations? Yeah, that's. I think that's very insightful. And this is crucial in this case because in the case of the implementation of the $15 minimum wage, in the city of Seattle, it was tiered by company size. So the biggest companies raised wages fastest. And the effect of that, of course, is that if you work in a coffee shop with one location and quit your job and move across the street 
to work in a coffee shop with multiple locations to do the same work, but for $3 more an hour. Like Starbucks. Like Starbucks. We have a couple of those yeah. in Seattle. <laughs> yeah. That counts in this study as job loss. This study would pick up that increased change in composition as job losses. That's right. Rather than just shifts of employment around within Seattle. So this is like the canonical example of a professional study done by professional academic economists that theoretically proved that an increase in the minimum wage killed jobs. But it was so foundationally flawed and obviously misleading. But what's so interesting is that you keep on using the word priors. I don't think that's the right word. It's preferences. Like if you prefer that minimum wage studies show job loss, this is music to your ears. Because obviously, if you're running the Chamber of Commerce, the finding that the minimum wage kills jobs is what enables you to promote policies that suppress wages. In your profession, that may be slightly different. But in the world, if people no longer believe that raising wages kills jobs, then the reasons for not wa raising wages dramatically disappear. And that has huge financial implications for a lot of people. I do think that, that this is why uh, minimum wage research in general, and I think just maybe good empirical research um, as well, but minimum wage re research uh, in particular, is extremely powerful in dispelling myths about how uh, the economy works. I think maybe to interpret what you're saying, um, tell me if I'm interpreting it wrong, is that you know, for a very long time, I think uh, many people thought or many people promoted the point of view is that we have this thing called the market. If you try to interfere with it, uh, you know, maybe you're going to redistribute things around, but you're going to cause a lot of harm to yeah. the people that you're trying to help. And in particular, you know, if you want to raise wage increases through some policy like the minimum wage, uh, maybe that's going to help some people, but it's really just going to cause an enormous amount of harm and hurt yeah. people overall. Yeah. And I think that minimum wage research in particular and some of the best empirical research in general is showing that actually, you know, it turns out that employers choose wages and they pay wages way too low. And you can actually have policies that make employers pay higher wages and those will benefit workers without causing, you know, these horrible scare stories that we're talking about. That's really well said, Ben. So one thing I want to, you know, close with as we talk about this study is something that will probably be very surprising to our listeners, which is this study, which was published, I think, first maybe 18 months ago, almost two years, two years ago, is still gets a ton of play and is cited all over the country, as I've mentioned. And it hasn't even been peer reviewed. This is a study of just some group of researchers that released a draft report and continues to get you know play across the country. I'd like to move to your study, on the other hand. Uh, you have some really groundbreaking recent work. Um, I think you know David Otter at uh, at MIT, uh, one of the you know preeminent economists and people that talks about the minimum wage, called it I think the most important research on the minimum wage since the Kruger card study that you cited at the beginning of our conversation. I'd love you to talk about what's different about the work that you're doing currently. It's really exciting and I know you guys are also going through the all important peer review showing your work and it's it has some pretty groundbreaking findings. So maybe talk about the methodologies that you're using and then the findings that you've found. Yeah, sure. So I think um, 
maybe one way to kind of relate this new study that I've co-authored with Aaron Drajit Dubey, Attila Lindner, and Derek Chinguez, yeah, to relate it to our previous discussion is that there's a ton of research on the minimum wage. And if you were to try to criticize even the best studies, in my view, I think that there are two kind of main drawbacks that prevent us from understanding more fully the consequences of minimum wage increases. And one is that a lot of prior minimum wage work was focused on groups of workers like teenagers or maybe restaurants. And while that's important, I mean, we care about teenage employment, we care about restaurant employment. Unfortunately, in this economy, those aren't the only workers earning low wages. And in fact, you know, for example, most low wage workers are adults. You know, if we were to raise the minimum wage to $15 nationally, over you know uh, uh, several years, 90% of workers who would get a wage increase are not teenagers. So right off the bat, there's a little bit of a concern about, well, there's all this research, it's on teenagers, but what we probably really care about is not just teenagers, but all low-wage workers, right? And so that's one thing that we're trying to address in our study, so that we are able to actually look at all low-wage workers rather than just teenagers as a group or rather than just, you know, people with limited education who face low wages. But instead, we're able to, you know, not only look at those groups, but all low-wage workers. So that's kind of the first important thing that we do. The second important thing that we do is that we kind of build uh, more on what you we were talking about earlier about having very careful treatments and control groups. And in particular, what we're able to show is how the minimum wage affects employment for over 130 state level minimum wage increases. So we look at 130 minimum wage increases that happened over the last uh, 30, 35 years or so. And uh, combining this emphasis on looking at all low wage workers and looking at 130 events, we're able to come up with a, a suite of, I think, very compelling and interesting findings. So the first finding is that when you raise the minimum wage, when minimum wages were raised over these 138 minimum wage increases, there was effectively no change in total employment. What you did find is that a lot of jobs that you would see that were paying low wages were no longer there in the data, and instead, you have a lot more higher wage jobs. That's exactly what you would expect if the minimum wage is doing its job of increasing wages and um, not reducing employment opportunities. The second thing that we found is that minimum wages not only raise the wages of very low wage workers earning, you know, kind of below the new minimum wage, but they actually raise wages for those just earning above the minimum wage, up to like in our study, up to about three or four dollars more than the min new minimum wage. So if you were to increase the minimum wage to $15 nationally, or as you did in Seattle, you would expect workers earning $16, $17, $18 already to also see wage increases so that there's this positive wage spillover effect. Is it possible to quantitatively characterize how much yeah, that's, so that's another thing that we're actually able to do in this study is that providing for, you know, uh, a, a new way of characterizing how much that sometimes that bow wave effect is called a spillover effect or a ripple effect of minimum wages across the wage distribution. And so what we find is that ripple effect is there. It does fade out pretty quickly 
but it does happen for workers about one to three dollars above the minimum wage increase. And in fact, if you were to look at the total wage increase induced by an increase in minimum wages, about 40% or so of the total wage increase is due to that spillover effect. So about 60% is due to directly lifting people's wages up to meet the new wage floor. And then you get 40% more. 40% of the total wage increase is due um, uh, to that spillover effect. So they're okay. actually quite sizable. That yeah. is just, that's a shocking number. If I can just play that back to you, so I, uh, I, I'm sure I get it right. If you took a million workers just hypothetically, who were earning $10 an hour and raise their wages to $15 an hour, that would be effectively $5 an hour times a million workers times the number of hours they were working in extra wages. But then you would have to add on into the economy as a knock-on effect, as a spillover effect, 40% more than that number that essentially equals the effect that the wages have had on people earning more than that wage. Yeah, so that that's that's pretty close. There's a little bit of a, a, a detail with how to calculate the percentages, yeah. but I think that that's basically right. Like fundamentally, a very large portion of the total wages that uh, we see increased because of the minimum wage, um, not not most of it or or not all of it for sure, um, but a very large portion is employers who are not required to raise yeah. these people's wages by law, but they do so anyways. And because there are a lot of reasons. Well, you've got to. You have to maintain yeah. uh, uh, internal pay uh, scales at the place that you're working at. It's also the case that if everyone else is raising wages, you're going to need to raise wages in order to recruit workers right. or retain your own workers, right? You know, we talk about seeing stagnated wages all across the country. But we also see that right now, a lot of the data nationally is that wages are raising after many years of stagnation. And one of the things we've identified is that a lot of that is largely attributable to jurisdictions that have raised their minimum wage either to 15 or to 13 or to $10. You know, we still have a $7.25 national minimum wage. And so you're essentially what you're saying, which is so striking, is that a lot of what we've just seen by looking out the window and looking around the world is actually borne out by the research, which is it's not just the people in these jurisdictions that are, you know, required statutorily to have their wages raised, but it's also the people around them that are getting, you know, that are having a spillover effect. And yep. so these these yeah. policy changes have huge impacts, you know, well beyond the specific people that the legislation impacts. Yeah. And if I could just follow on to what Jasmine said and frame it in a slightly different way, you know, as a political matter and as a narrative matter, one of the hardest problems we've come up against in this work is what we say to the people who didn't get directly affected by a $15 minimum wage. And those people legitimately say to us, well, what about me? Like, well, and they're being told mm -hmm. by their bosses that they're going to get less hours, they're going to be negatively impacted. Yes. So it's, or, it's not just what about me, it's you're raising people's wages below me and my boss is telling me I'm going to get less hours or be fired or other bad things are going to happen. Yeah, but that's the usual intimidation tactic masquerading as economic theory. I think, Jasmine, what, what I'm thinking about is just in my conversations with folks that they legitimately say, look, I've worked really hard to get from 725 to 15. So now these folks are going to get 15 essentially for free, 
right? The government is going to impose a new standard. And these folks didn't have to work their way up from 725 to 15. They just get it automatically and for free. And that feels unfair to me. And I'm very sympathetic to that emotion, right? Like I, I get that. But what Ben's research is showing is, well, guess what? You're going to get a 40% bump for free too, <laughs> right? That when we, the effect on the market, when we impose these labor standards is that you get something for free too, right? It's not zero sum, that in fact, your wages will be pushed upwards too. And this is something I knew anecdotally, like I've run dozens of businesses. It's just what you have to do, both to compete and to keep your teams intact. But this new data, I think is really powerful and interesting. And I just, I'm just going to have to process it. It's definitely not something the people in the world who are litigating these issues understand and are using to great effect yet, for sure. So yay, Ben, good job. And look, here's the truth that the Chamber of Commerce has literally a trillion dollars per year at stake, <laughs> a trillion dollars. Uh, and, and there is no amount of money uh, and no amount of energy that they aren't going to devote to getting people to continue to believe that raising wages will harm the very people it's intended to help. Uh, because if they can get people to believe that, then wages will be low and profits will be high. They don't make these arguments because they're true. They make them because they're the most effective way ever devised to make rich people richer. And, you know, ultimately, that's what this is about. This is a tussle over who gets what and why, which is what economics is. <laughs> So, well, listen, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this insanely wonky topic, but this is why we do the podcast. I don't think there's really any other place <laughs> that people can go for this kind of detail and understanding. And I think we're, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to get to do this and to talk to you about it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Nick, for having me on. Um, Sorry, listeners, that I'm such a nerd, but I really appreciate, you know, the opportunity to talk about these issues. Yeah, I love it. Okay, man. We'll, we'll talk soon. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye. So, Jasmine, we did a very wonky interview with a very smart person. How to bring it back to some level of understandability. Is that even a word? <laughs> but our colleague, uh, Stephanie, came up with this fantastic list, you know, sort of how to tell you're being fed a bullshit study about the minimum wage, which would be really fun to share with the audience. I remember, who's that? I can't remember the comic who does, you know, you're a redneck when, right? Well, this is, a, you know, you're being lied to about the minimum wage when, among other things, do they emphasize teenagers? <laughs> Right. You know, if uh, somebody is talking about how terrible this wage increase will be for teenagers, that they're grasping for straws, that our problem in the economy obviously is not an under, you know, that we're underpaying teenagers. Teenagers are largely in school. <laughs> our problem is that we're underpaying people in their mid 20s or early 30s uh, who have low wage jobs. One of my personal favorites is does it rely on an employer uh, survey or yes. predictions? any kind of worker standard or change. Uh, yeah. You know, the business organizations, the Chamber of Commerce love to go and interview employers yeah. and say, are you going to hate paying your workers more? Yes. And are you going to have to fire people because you have to pay higher wages? 90% of them, yes. 
Okay. So any sort of employer survey is always a lie. And it sounds ridiculous, but if you actually dig into how people get the numbers that they're presenting in these articles, a lot of times it comes down to employer surveys. Yeah, absolutely. A related favorite and a frequent one is, do they rely on franchise owners who are closing like Subway sandwiches stores or whatever it is? Um, you know, the same sort of scare tactics. You know, certainly we had a lot of that when we raised the minimum wage $15 in Seattle. And it is true that some restaurants closed, but for every restaurant that closed, three opened. So <laughs> obviously it wasn't that bad. The bad restaurants closed. And another one that's similar is, do they rely on surveys of economists? Orthodox yes, economists. That's right. Are they asking them what's going to happen just based on their opinion? Yes, without any reliance on data or empirical evidence or whatever it is. In particular, economists who are sort of really wedded to these old neoclassical models. Because again, 100% of the neoclassical models do predict that if you raise wages, it kills jobs because you move away from the equilibrium and that harms everybody. And so, you know, as we said a thousand times before, in the podcast, there is no equilibrium. <laughs> it doesn't exist in a complex adaptive system, which is our economy. Another thing is fake EPI. Yes. So there are two EPIs in the world. There's the Economic Policy Institute, which is the good EPI full of esteemed economists, esteemed economists and smart people doing real peer-reviewed work on this. And that's where Ben works. And that's where Ben works. And then there's this other thing called the Employment Policy Institute, which amazingly has the same three letters, EPI, which is basically this one dude working in a tiny office in the middle of nowhere that just sort of manufactures nonsense and sends out press releases about how, how the minimum wage is gonna kill jobs and who basically works for the Restaurant Association. Just sort of feeds reporters propaganda about how raising wages will kill jobs. And then, of course, the old synthetic alternative trick. Obviously, the best minimum wage studies do rely on comparisons. But what we found over the last 20 years is when the comparisons are accurate, when you compare what's happening in a place like Seattle to a place that is similar to Seattle, like San Francisco or another city, the studies confirm basically again and again that there's no employment effect. But of course, you can make a synthetic alternative any way you want. Like in the case of the Vigdor study in the state of Washington, they simply created a synthetic alternative made up of places not like Seattle and got the result that they wanted. And so, also, you know, if a study isn't peer reviewed, it's mm -hmm. something that you should question. You know, there is a process that actually verifies how academic research is done and credentials it. And we should make sure when you're looking at a study, you should make sure that the study is actually going through that peer-reviewed process. Even if it has professors that look legitimate from a uni legitimate university, yeah. if it hasn't been peer-reviewed, basically the work hasn't been checked yet. Yeah. And finally, the old favorite, the old neoliberal favorite, the, the claim that raising wages will harm the very people we intend to help. If you hear them say that, that's definitely hitting neoliberal trickle-down bingo. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you always know they're lying when they say that. So anyway, it was a super interesting conversation with Ben. I realized it was really wonky for the most hardcore of our listeners. I hope it was really interesting. Absolutely. And we'll be yeah. looking forward to seeing the studies when they come out because yep. they're really exciting and groundbreaking. Yeah. Speaking of bogus claims and neoliberal bingo, in our next episode, we're going to talk about the principle of marginal productivity which is economists speak for no matter how much you get paid, that's what you're worth. This is 
is Nick Hanauer. You've reached the magic voicemail box where you can leave me uh, questions. All you have to do is state your name, where you're calling from, and your question. Hi, Nick. My name is Abby Newcomb, and I'm calling from Chicago. And I have some questions for you about the minimum wage. When I talk to other people about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, a lot of their uh, sort of argument against this is that if we raise, raise the minimum wage, then ultimately employers will find a way to do the job with less people and then further isolating people from making a livable wage. And so, and I think that that is a valid point with all of the automation that has been taking place. So I would just love to hear your opinion on how we can ensure that people make a living wage and that also that their jobs don't get uh, automated out. Thanks for all that you do. I love listening to the podcast. Hope to hear from you. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. I think Abby raises two questions. One is, will raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour uh, cause automation? Uh, and the other is, uh, will that actually kill jobs? Yeah, so this is the classic pushback against raising wages. And it's been the same pushback uh, in one in one form or another, since the invention of the of the minimum wage, whether it was automation or outsourcing or whatever it is, uh, the the basic refrain that raising wages kills jobs because employers will purchase less less of it in one way or shape or form is what employers have been saying about the minimum wage since its inception. And what we know from empirical evidence is that although that's what they say, in fact, that isn't what actually happens. And the reason for that is, mostly, is that when people earn more money, they buy more stuff, which creates a feedback loop in the economy, forcing employers to hire more people to make that stuff. Right, and the Congressional Budget Office just released right. a report which specifically said that, that raising the minimum wage to $15 would actually increase consumer demand yes. and boost the economy. Yeah. And a great way to think about it is just to imagine the alternative scenario, say, instead of the minimum wage for uh, f uh, being seven twenty-five an hour, uh, seven twenty-five an hour. Imagine it using that trickle-down logic that we reduced it to three dollars an hour, uh, which a lot of our trickle-down friends think would be a fantastic idea. Well, now all these tens of millions of people would earn half as much money, and therefore buy half as much stuff, creating a essentially a death spiral of falling demand, and. So, you know, raising wages doesn't kill jobs, it creates them because, for example, when restaurant owners all of a sudden are required to pay restaurant workers enough so that now even they can afford to eat in restaurants, it's pretty good for the restaurant business. Right. Hence our booming restaurant industry here yes. in Seattle. I, I think this raises a, another question to me, another issue, uh, which is kind of this catch-22 that the orthodox economists have, which is, on the one hand, we have an economy in, you know, wages are flat, yeah. and one of the explanations for that is that, for whatever reason, companies have not been investing in productivity-enhancing technology, i.e. automation, yeah. because historically, that's how you raise wages in living standard, is you invest in capital capital equipment that allows you to do more, create more with less labor, yeah. and 
It hasn't been for the past 30 years. But yeah. Historically, workers have shared in that increased productivity. Yeah. On the other hand, they're telling you, if you raise the minimum wage, oh, no, we're going to have to invest right. in in productivity enhancing uh, capital equipment. Right. To kill so, your jobs. To, right. So which is it? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's neither and both. Uh, and so clearly what we want. We want businesses to invest in capital to, to make the economy more productive. Right. But we also want workers to have enough power to be able to negotiate a fair split of right. the increase in value that that creates. And of course, automation will replace some tasks and jobs. Uh, that's in, in, while it is super inconvenient for a particular person in a particular case at the micro scale, at the macro scale, if workers have protections and wages are rising, the economy will get larger and more and more jobs will be created. Uh, it just It's just useful to remember that in 1938, when the first minimum wage was passed, employers said exactly the same thing then right. that they are saying now, uh, but somehow we pay a lot more uh, wages and we have on the order of five times as many jobs as we did then. So clearly something, you know. Right. So yeah. to sum this up for you, Abby, if in fact... Uh, the owners of capital and the owners of intellectual property get to take all of the benefits from automation, then raising the minimum wage might be bad for yeah. workers. But that's a choice. And yeah. if, in fact, we share these benefits from automation and from productivity yeah. broadly with uh, all yeah. workers, and the, as we used to do, well, then automation actually isn't a bad thing. Correct. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, And peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests. And thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk. Jasmine Weaver, Jessen Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week.